we see, well, actually, he's primarily concerned with Judah. He speaks a lot about Jerusalem. So we conclude that he's a Jew, or he's being sent to the Jews. The book gives us some idea about when he lived. Uh, have a look at the next slide that's coming up. Next slide. Okay. Um, can you see that? Uh, okay, that side's better. Okay, so sorry about this. Have a look at the next slide. Now, that's a brief history of, of Israel. All right? And you've got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, then they go off to Egypt. And there's the Exodus there, and the Joshua, Judges, Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, after Solomon, the kingdom split into the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. And then we see that Israel ends up in exile in Babylon in 722 BC. Judah ends up in exile. Uh, sorry, it goes off to Syria in 722 BC. Judah ends up in exile in Babylon, uh, 597, 587 BC. Uh, and then afterwards, there's a return, and that's the end of the Old Testament history. Now, where is Joel in the schema? Well, in the book of Joel, Judah is sometimes called Israel, which means that it must be at least after the northern kingdom is taken off into exile. If not, it would be very confusing. So you can say it's probably after 722 B.C. There's no mention of the temple either, even though there's mention of, of the priests and all those things. So it seems to be most likely that it's... Oh, sorry, sorry, what am I saying? I think, oh, I'm completely wrong. There is mention of the temple. Okay? There is, so it either has to be before the exile to Babylon, which is 587 B.C., when the temple was destroyed, or sometime after the temples rebuilt in 516 BC. The observation is that there is no king mentioned. Uh, and so the leaders are the elders and the priests. So which means, and the kings are there right until the exile. Uh, and so it means that many scholars tend to have it then sometime after 516 BC, after the return, because before 586 there is kings, but that's an argument from silence and not terribly conclusive. Because on the other hand, the prophecy about the day of the Lord, which we read in chapter 2, could find perhaps its initial fulfillment in the Babylonian destruction of Judah. And if that were so, then it would be prophesied beforehand. Though, on the other hand, it might not. So we don't really know for sure, but we do think it is most likely either just before the exile or after the return. And as Brian said last week, the message of Joel transcends it anyway. Uh, so it doesn't matter in terms of the ultimate purpose of the book, although we have to think about both scenarios when we're thinking about the initial uh, interpretation at the time. The biggest thing we saw in chapter 1 last week was that great calamity that hit Judah. It was disaster pictured as a massive invasion of locusts. There was swarm upon swarm of them. The plague that destroyed all the plants, all the harvests, all the figs, all the vines, all the evidence of God's blessing on his people. Leaving the land desolate and wasted. And leaving the people in mourning. Again, we can't tell for sure if the locusts themselves were the disaster being, being, being spoken about. Or they were meant to be a metaphor for an invading army. And I'll talk to you what I think in a moment. 1 verse 6 seems to suggest that at least, because, about the army at least, because it says a nation has come against my land, but then the nation could be a nation of locusts. Joel could be just calling them a nation to emphasize how many there were. 
And in fact, as you look at the, at the text, there's so much about the locusts and so, it just makes, it, to, to me it seems, as far as I can see, unless there's good evidence otherwise, we should take it at face value and call it a locust invasion. But let's remain open to the possibilities that it could be a metaphor for something else, uh, but as we read on uh, in the rest of the, chapter, rest of the book. It's also hard to tell from chapter 1 if the disaster has already happened or if Joel was prophesying that it will happen. A lot of what he says is in the past tense, though you see it's prophetic, so it could be about the future. But whether or not the locust disaster is in the past or in the future, the warning in chapter 2 is of something beyond it. Because you see, in chapter 1, verse 15, when the food is already cut off, in verse 16, he says, in verse 15, that the day of the Lord is near. And so the locust invasion of chapter 1, or whatever it is symbolic of, is a warning, a foretaste, a sign of an even greater judgment that is to come. The day of the Lord is near. And that judgment that is to come is going to come on this day of the Lord. And then chapter 2 opens futuristically with the announcement of that judgment. Chapter 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Because the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Zion, Zion, you know, is called... God's holy mountain, because it's the hill on which Jerusalem is built. It's the center for God's plans and purposes for the world. And there on Zion is the announcement of the coming day of the Lord. It's an announcement that brings fear and terror. That makes everyone quake. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble, verse 1 continues, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It is a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. It reminds you of when God met Israel on the mountain, Mount Sinai, and gave him his laws. Darkness, cloud. And on this day of the Lord, God will be present. He will act. And then the passage goes on to talk about, well, when you stand in Zion and you look at the mountains in the distance, you see that darkness and gloom. But then as you look at that darkness from afar, you you suddenly realize that the darkness on the mountains is caused by a massive, massive army. Second half of verse 2. Like the blackness that is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will, ever, nor will be again after them through all years of all generations. Somehow or other, this, this army, this judgment that is coming, is greater than that of any other, of past or future. And it's coming your way. This army is completely devastating the land, step by step as they advance. Verse 3, fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. It's a mighty, scary army. Yet when you go to other parts of the Old Testament, you see the same imagery is used for God himself. 
uh, in Psalm chapter 50 verse 3. Our next slide. Uh, I can have the next slide, sorry. Next slide, please. Oops, or maybe one back. There we go, thank you. Psalm 50 verse 3. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Or Psalm 97. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, builds up, uh, uh, burns up his adversaries all around. The picture is used of God in other places, but here it's used of this, this army of judgment. Well, when you zoom in on this army, you see they, they, they seem to have the most powerful military hardware. And, and in those days it was horses and chariots and but if you look at verse 4 and 5, it doesn't actually say they do have horses and chariots. It just says they, they look like horses and sound like chariots. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. It's meant to evoke images of feelings of fear but then you do realize it's not a literal army because they are like an army they don't literally have horses they have the appearance of horses so the painting Joel is painting is something like an army but it's, but it's not really an army maybe it's a description of more locusts another locust plague perhaps because locust plague is like a mighty invading army or maybe he's describing some judgment in the future in the kind of terms that they are terribly familiar with, in, in terms of the locusts. Another judgment which is much greater than anything that has been before or ever will be. Well, in the prophetic imagery, the people are terrified as the locusts come. Verse 6, Before them peoples are in anguish, all their faces grow pale, but these, but, these, but these locusts in the picture, they are marching on. They are like soldiers, verse 7. Again, they are like soldiers. It's like soldiers, not literal soldiers. They are well-trained, well-disciplined, unstoppable, verse 7. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter the windows like a thief. We saw these locusts coming and devastating the countryside in this picture, and this vision. And now they have reached the city. They are in Zion. And darkness now covers Jerusalem because there are so many of them. And their movements make it feel like the mountain is moving. Verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. And this army, this mighty locust army, have come and overtaken the city of God, the temple of God, the holy mountain of God. But this is not outside God's control. For this army is none other than, none other than His army. Verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. You see this locust attack, this locust invasion, this great devastation 
happens because God commands it. And this powerful army of locusts that, that, that Joel is picturing here are simply obeying his word. And so this day of judgment and devastation, this day of gloom and fear, this day of terror, is really the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord, the end of verse 11, is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? You see, the imagery here, the picture here, is that of, still that of locusts, isn't it? That's what they're familiar with, having experienced what they experienced in chapter 1. But what does the picture point to? Is this another plague of locusts that is coming? Is it a picture that points to the reality of an invading army? If it were an invading army, it would be a little bit funny that God uses the simile of an army to describe the locusts, which then are a metaphor for an army, isn't it? It's possible, but a bit long-winded. Or is he talking about a real plague of locusts that in turn points to something else, a, a judgment that is even greater? Or is he just taking the picture of the locusts because they are so familiar with it to talk about a judgment to come using the categories of the judgment of the past? Well, whatever this judgment is, it is clear that it's God's judgment. He is bringing disaster. This day is the day of the Lord. Well, how should Israel respond to this day? The answer is in verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. God wants his people to come back to him. He wants them to be truly sorry for rejecting him and failing to treat him properly. And that contrition, that remorse will be expressed in fasting and weeping and mourning. They were meant to be genuinely sad that they had treated the almighty God the way they did. And so this fasting and weeping and mourning was meant to be not just an external thing. Not just something you do going through the motions because that's what you're meant to do or that's the particular time of the year it is. No. It's meant to come from the heart. Rend your hearts, God says at the beginning of verse 13, not your garments. What God wants is genuine, heartfelt repentance. Change on the inside. Rend your hearts. Tear your hearts. Not your clothes. And come back to God. Return to the Lord, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and He relents over disaster. He relents of a disaster. He changes his... He, he says, if we repent, then he will not do that disaster. If God's people truly repented, maybe God would call off 
that planned judgment. Verse 14, who knows whether he will not turn and relent and, and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. There's no guarantee that God will do it. No forcing him to be merciful. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent. There is hope though. And the hope is based on his character. That he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. And so Joel calls the people to come together in warning. Verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion. This is the second blowing of the trumpet, isn't it? The first one at the beginning of chapter 2 was to declare the day of the Lord is coming. And now there's another blowing. Come. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Bring everybody, young and old. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride her chamber. This is, this is so important that you even postpone consummating a marriage to get to this one. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord. These, these priests, these, these are mediators. They represent the people before God. They plead to God. Spare your people. Don't make your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And notice why? How they argue? They say, why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? See, they know how to pray. They pray this way because far more important than the safety of God's people is the glory of God and the honor of his name. And so they plead with him in this way. Well, what happens from here? We are told in verse 18 onwards that God has pity and restores his people. Whatever the judgment is, it is removed. God's people are restored. And then in the last part of chapter 2, the Spirit is poured out. Remember how we said this day of this disaster was called the Day of the Lord? Maybe referring to a military attack. Maybe even the Babylonian one. Depending on your dating. Maybe referring to a worse locust plague. Maybe referring to another disaster that was about to happen. But whatever the case, these judgments, they were pictures still. They were types. They were, they were shadows of the real day of the Lord that was about to come. The ultimate day that would happen before the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. The day when God would truly come in judgment on his people before restoring them in the end. A day which would, in the words of chapter 2, verse 2, be a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. 
in Jerusalem, in Zion, on another day of the Lord, a day of darkness and gloom, Jesus, the true Israel, suffered under the punishment of God. He suffered through the darkness of judgment like there has never been before, nor will ever be through all years of generations. And when he died, the earth did quake, the heavens trembled, and the sun was darkened. For he died as Israel's representative for the sins of his people. And he died as our representative for our sins. And God did relent from punishing the penitent. And he was able to do so justly. Because in the person of his son, he himself bore the punishment for us. On that great and awesome day of the Lord. We remember that the second half of Joel 2 predicts a restoration for Israel after this day of the Lord in chapter 2. A restoration that may be prefigured by the return from the exile or recovery from the disaster. But we know the true restoration came through the resurrection of Jesus because in Jesus the true Israel was restored. And after that resurrection we have verse 28 and 29 in the events that we know as Pentecost. Yet the end of chapter 2 shows the day of the Lord is still going to come. Because the events of Pentecost happen still before the great and glorious day of the Lord in verse 31. So we are still expecting another day of the Lord. Another day when God will come in judgment. Not just against Israel, but as we talk about in chapter 3, against the nations. The first half of chapter 3, we'll see in a couple of weeks, will paint a terrible, terrible picture of that day, but also declares God's people will be safe. On that day. And what Joel saw dimly, we see clearly in the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for our sins under God's judgment. That was the day of the Lord. But he rose again and poured out his spirit and gives salvation to those who trust in him. And one day he is going to come back to judge the nations. And that too will be the day of the Lord. those who belong to him will be saved and be with him in the heavenly Jerusalem forever. That is the the message of the prophet Joel. And in light of that, let's consider then the commands of chapter 2, verse 12 to 17. Israel was called to repent in light of the judgment to come. Who knows what would happen if they did. Maybe God would relent. Maybe the disaster wouldn't happen. Maybe God would bless them. But you remember there is no certainty. Israel was called to repent before the day of the Lord. And before the ultimate day of the Lord came in the death of Jesus. Israel was also called to repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Believe the good news. That was a theme of of the ministry of John the Baptist and the early ministry of Jesus. And if only Israel had heeded that warning, they would have known their king. 
was meant to prepare Israel for the day of the Lord. And this passage for us is meant to prepare us for that final day of the Lord. For like the people of Israel in Joel's time, we know there is a day of judgment approaching. We know that left to our own devices, we would surely be lost on that day. For we know that we are sinful and deserve God's wrath. And we know that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we know that our only hope is in His mercy. We know that it is urgent. Drop everything for it. We know this is important. And we know that we cry out to Him through our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we do so, we do so in a way that is different from Israel of old. God has given us His Spirit. His Spirit is given to all His people so that we can truly repent from the heart. We are commanded like them to be penitent. Not because we don't know if God is going to forgive us or not. No longer in that position because we already know that He has. We know that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we have seen that even more clearly than Israel. Because we have seen that at the cross. And so there is all the more reason to love him and glorify him. That's all the more reason to bewail our sins and our failings against him. My friends, if there is anyone here today who is still living apart from Jesus Christ, if the day of the Lord for you has not happened already at the death of Christ, then like Joel, let me sound the alarm for you. Tremble, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It is coming. It is near. It is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like there never has been and never will be in generations to come. The day of the Lord is awesome. Who can endure it? Only those whose sins have already been dealt with at the prior day of the Lord, at the cross. So turn to God and live. For he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love. And relents from disaster. And brothers and sisters who already have been saved. Whose day the Lord has happened whose sins have been dealt with at the cross, let us be penitent. Let us be people who are characterized by repentance. Not just when we first turn to Christ, but every day of our Christian lives. For as we grow in Christ, we realize more and more how holy God is. And as God's Spirit shows us more and more of God's holiness, we realize more and more how sinful we are. 
And we realize more and more how desperately lost we would be on the day of the Lord if it were not for Jesus. See, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not something that we leave behind when we've become Christians. Not something that gets us in and then we go on to something else. Every day of our lives we know we are sinners. And every day of our lives we know that God is holy. And every day of our lives we must be grateful to what God has done for us in Jesus to reconcile us to himself. Every day of our lives we live in repentance and dependence on him. Every day of our lives we repent and believe the gospel. So let us take the opportunity today to examine ourselves in light of Scripture. Let us pray that God will indeed grant us hearts that are contrite. And where we have wondered, let us return to the Lord our God. Like Israel of old, let us cry out to Him for mercy. Not in hopelessness or despair, but in confidence because of the Lord Jesus. And let us appreciate more and more the forgiveness and life that was won for us on the day of the Lord. For he is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you are indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting over disaster. Grant us, we pray, by your Spirit new and contrite hearts that we may truly return to you that we may acknowledge our sin and our wretchedness throw ourselves at your mercy Appreciate the wonders of your grace that you have shown to us at the cross and receive from you pardon and peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.